to season two of Inside My Canoe Head, a podcast about individual emergency preparedness, living through a pandemic, reinventing yourself, and chasing adventure. My name is Jeff. Thanks for joining us today, and let's get to it. All right, this week is Emergency Preparedness Week. I know it seems like everybody gets a week. You know, there's Dog Lovers Week, there's Cat Lovers Week, but this is the Emergency Preparedness Week in Canada and in a lot of places around the world. It's our one week where everybody is supposed to be paying attention to the preparedness message more so than normal, and it is supposed to be the government's opportunity to get their message across to you, the citizens, as to what you need to do, what you should be doing, So to look at whether this is success or not, let's have a look at what the message is in Canada this week. It is be prepared for anything. Now, first and foremost, when somebody tells you that be prepared for anything, we are presented with two distinct possibilities. One, the individual is going to think that this is a bit apocalyptic in that it is almost a large hill and insurmountable obstacle to get across. You want me to be prepared for anything, like literally anything that can happen. That's ridiculous. The the, the amount of stuff that I would have to do would be way outside of my financial situation. Hey, don't you know this is a pandemic? I mean, the responses to that kind of messaging can be all across the map. But their intent, when you read the documentation put out by Public Safety Canada and other organizations that work in this space, their intent is for you to do a bit of a HIRA, hazard identification and risk assessment for your life. And we talk about this on Inside My Canoe Head in a number of previous episodes when we talk about how do you understand what you need to do without understanding the risks that you face. So because of that, what we do is we encourage people to have a look around and see if they have a significant hazard around them. If you're on a fault line, obviously earthquake preparedness is going to be something very near and dear to your heart. If you're on the southwest coast of British Columbia, you have an earthquake and a massive tsunami risk. If you're on the east coast of the United States of America, you're probably mainly encouraged to take time to consider hurricane preparedness and potential coastal evacuations but that's their intent but unfortunately the message be prepared for anything does not always bring across that message if you send a handle out and this is what it's called in communication strategy your handle your tie line or in writing great authors will tell you it's the hook it's that first sentence what gets somebody interested in this book to cross their legs on the table in front of them when they realize i'm going to be here a little bit because this is worth my time If you have to explain that hook to your listeners, if you have to explain what you mean by be prepared for anything, you've missed the boat. And I know that's not the intent. I mean, I personally know the Director of Emergency Preparedness at Public Safety Canada, and and this is not the intent. The intent is not to employ a chicken little strategy that the the sky is falling, we're all doomed, you know, apocalyptic references, and then people at best will ignore your message, and at secondary, they're going to start laughing about it. You're you're unfortunately not going to hit the points that you want to. And just as an example... And communications, a recent study out of New Zealand that was released a couple of weeks ago, they looked at the ways that the communication message was framed 
to reduce the vectors of transmission. So a vector of transmission is an avenue. So everybody that you meet is a new vector of transmission. They employed a basic yet exceptional, uh, effectively psychological viewpoint. And we all try it as parents. It's called positive reinforcement. By simply reorientating a message and stop, they didn't berate their citizens with things of don't do. They told their citizens what to do. So instead of saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, they said, get outside, enjoy sports, go to playgrounds, go to beaches, go to parks, follow the simple rule of six feet apart, go visit your relatives, get in their driveway, sit on a lawn chair, stay six feet apart from them, and have a coffee with them. Build that mental strength and resiliency, which is so difficult to maintain during things like a pandemic. And, you know, a recent study that came out of Ireland showed that one-tenth of one percent of all traceable COVID-19 transmissions were from an outside source. So the theory is, on what they're getting at in New Zealand and in Australia and other places, is the fact that you need to tell people to do the low-risk activities so that they don't do the high-risk activities. By telling people they can't do any activity, they will rebel. And it's not because people don't like government or anything. It's because basic psychology tells us that fear messaging works until the subjects are informed as to what you're giving them a fear message about. Once people understood the pandemic in general and the virus transmission research at a basic level, they stopped reacting to fear-mongering and government intimidation about the horrible things that were going to happen if they did these high-risk activities. It's a very simple lesson, but it's, it's, it's lost on many of our politicians in that the messaging you want to get across to people is, here are the low-risk things that I want you to do. Okay, I'm going to give you things to do, but we can't do the other things, but here are the things you can do. I want to encourage you to get out. I want to encourage to spend time with people outside your bubble, six feet apart, in the open air. Indoor stuff is just, you know, persona non grata right now. It's COVID-19. We can't do that, but let's get together and do these public outdoor things where the rate of transmission is still there, but at an exceptionally lower level. But what you don't do is kill the mental illness and mental health with, by the way, this is also mental health week. At the same time, it's an emergency preparedness week. And a lot of times that gets lost on all of us when we're trying to manage our way through the emergency preparedness messaging, when we're trying to get just you know, get through COVID on a daily basis and all the restrictions that are placed upon us. Everybody says, oh, don't worry about it in the future. We're going to concentrate on helping your mental health. But it's like, if you don't take care of the ICU nurses now, you're going to burn them out. And once they're burned out, they're not coming back to work. So you, can you imagine at the end of this, I would be surprised if at least not a third of our ICU nurses just simply stopped working at the end of this pandemic because of burnout. They're going to go do something else for a living or they're going to go do some other form of nursing that is far less stressful. I mean, we're just not going to have the people to manage this a second time around because of how poorly we've managed it the first time around. So when we talk about emergency preparedness, what we want to do is we want to make sure our messaging is about reachable goals, you know, ideas and actions 
that are nominal in price and exponential in benefit. You know, we want to encourage simplicity in the tackling of tough goals and people will happily follow along the journey. You know, we don't get ready for everything or anything overnight. In fact, research will tell us that emergency preparedness is a fluid state. It's not a specific set of accomplishments. There's a very difficult argument going on right now in the preparedness community as to what is a prepared individual. How do you define that? And you can imagine right now, just thinking out loud in your own mind, how you would define prepared. When do you know you're there? You know, when do you know you're successful in any job? When do you know you're prepared? How do you define that exact? And we know it to be, research tells us, and in my experience in this research field, this is exactly that. It's a fluid state. Uh, It's about accepting responsibility for you and your family's outcomes. It's the most important question in emergency preparedness, which is who is responsible for your outcomes? You know, it's understanding that the state is exceptionally limited in their ability to insist. Many of my friends work in emergency management profession full-time and they are exceptional individuals and they work very, very hard and they are dedicated. But the limited resources they have in comparison to the multi-millions of people that they attempt to serve, there's just no, the state can't come rescue you. You may be fortunate enough to be the one of 50 911 calls that gets answered in a significant disruption, but the odds are the state's just, just not coming to help you. And that's not that they're not going to be able to do something in the background. But when I'm talking about you specifically, you, your family's individual exact needs at that place and time, it is very difficult for you to win the lottery and be that one of individual that does get assistance in a timely basis when you need it. So, you know, most scholars note that we need to move beyond current messaging of kits, information and plans and move to the adoption of a mindset, the critical advantage of the human species, which is adaptability. What separates us from every other species on Earth? We're not the physically strongest. We're not the most robust. We actually can only survive without clothes in a very, very small area of temperate climate around the Euphrates River in what is today Iraq, which is considered the birthplace of humanity. Going out beyond that, we need to put skins on. Now, animals don't. They, they come fully prepared to deal with their total environment they have. But what's the difference human beings have? So from a sociological perspective, those guys have it nailed. They say, you know, humans are the only ones that know we're here. That's a basic way to explain it. We have the cognitive thinking ability to adapt. We have the ability as a species to adapt to the environment and adapt to situations that are presented in front of us. So when we think about be ready for anything, it's actually a statement that's best translated into adaptability. I mean, this is a measurement of your ability to pivot from your current trajectory based upon stimulus. So, for example, when the pandemic caused a disruption in employment for many Canadians, the government provided benefits. I mean, that should have been the period where time where individuals pivoted to their alternate career or found an alternate career or employment in order to fund their lives while awaiting the disruption to pass in their normal industry. It was never the intention nor the responsibility of the government to fund everybody's lives during the pan- until the pandemic has passed and over and some type of normalcy comes back. But it's to afford the time for people to pivot, reorientate, 
and launch themselves down an alternate path. So the adaptability theme, uh, you know, it encourages people to adopt lessons learned along the way, but be moving. You're fluid in actions and thought. If you build a bunker, for example, you provide yourself one option. If you sit down with your favorite beverage and you think logically through all the possible eventualities and the outcomes that you may consider if that eventuality happened, you're giving yourself multiple options. Preparedness is cheap and simple. I've got a complete episode on that. It's all about attitude and responsibility, and it's not about anything that costs money. I mean, from my perspective, governments should be encouraging the construction, expansion, and maintenance of social capital. You know, it is the true emergency kit. Community resilience is our best expression of collective adaptability. We as a species, we're far better off in normal situations in life when we're part of a tribe of people or, you know, your own tribe would be your close family and your close set of friends. Consider that a tribe. You're better off in normal life having those people around you. Forget the fact of how much better off you'll be when a significant disruption happens. I mean, when we encourage the strengthening of social relationships between residents, we create these bonds. And you forget the fact that they have huge socioeconomic safety and trust side effects when you develop a sense of community, a sense of belonging, a sense of trust amongst people, a sense of caring. And if I nerd out on you here again, I mean, this is what scholarship, this is what research shows us that all of our eventualities and all the things that we try to do within the emergency preparedness space, it is all orientated towards better outcomes. That's the point. So whatever we try to tell people to do education-wise, acquisition-wise, whatever your theoretical framework or how you approach it is, everybody's effort, including the government's, is about the very same thing. We want better outcomes. We know what actually will work towards better outcomes, which is building social capital and building community resiliency. We know what doesn't equate to better outcomes, which is making and buying emergency kits. So we, we know this space very, very well, and that's what we're trying to do. So it's not complicated. So this falls on my, you know, I just, I, I spent some, a good deal of time over this week wondering why is this the message that is coming out be prepared for anything that's an eventuality that is so difficult for individuals to wrap their heads around that you're more than likely going your effort is is just going to get more people to turn it off if i tell you right now you need to be prepared for anything absolutely anything that could happen people are just going to turn me off and say you're a goofball see you later bye bye and, and that's be the end of it. But if I say, hey, listen, there's some work to do, but we're going to take you along a journey and a pathway. And we understand that everybody is going to be at a different part of this journey, but we're going to go along. You got to have the patience. It's going to be slow, methodical, and we'll get you there. But it is doable. It's not going to cost you any money. It's just going to cost you a little bit of your time and some of your cranial thinking capacity. So to answer the question, I'm going to give you my five-minute rundown on be prepared for anything. How do we do that? Well, the first thing that we need to focus on is right here in, inside my canoe head, we have always talked about pivoting from disaster risk reduction to disaster impact reduction, which means we are not focusing on HIRAs and specific risks as they present themselves. We're prevent focusing ourselves on the disaster impact reduction, which means 
when the services that we enjoy today and require are no longer available to us, what is our methodological plan to deal with that? And we always go to the simplistic ones. When the power goes out, when you look through the DIR lens, you are cared about what am I going to do now that the power's out? I don't care why. The DRR lens looks at the event from the perspective of what caused the power to go out. So let's get prepared for that event. And our logic says, no, you need to prepare for the loss that is a result of the event, not the event itself. So that says, I don't care why the power's out. The power's out, folks. What is my plan? What am I going to do? The second part is building a community. And I've said this all along. Whenever I talk to people in the municipal space, whenever I talk to clients, whenever I give community group speeches or however it may be done, the first thing I tell people is the most important thing in emergency preparedness is to meet your neighbor, to understand the people that surround you physically, in a sense, in a close community. Because you could be a member of a very, very strong faith community. And most modern faiths have a very strong social capital bond in between them. It's a bit of exclusionary as well. But for the most part, they're very, very strong bonds. But they don't necessarily live physically where you do. So in the immediacy of assistance required... There's also the social capital to build for the people that physically live around you. That doesn't mean everybody's got to come over Friday night for a poker night or something like that. It's just, do you know your neighbor's names? Do you know generally a little bit about them? Have you, do you say hi and wave at them all the time? When, they, when you see them, do you actually stop and engage in a little bit of conversation? All of that builds social capital so that when you need to knock on the door at three in the morning because your world has gone upside down, these people know you. And they're going to, oh, it's John. What's going on? Is something up? What can I do for you? That's the reaction, not what are you doing at my door at three in the morning and who the hell are you? I think I've seen you around the neighborhood, etc. But you build that social capital. It costs nothing and it is exponentially greater to your benefit than anything you can buy in any store or online. And the last thing is, and we've said it before, we'll go right back to the simplistic point of view. It's your animalistic requirements. So if we think as a human species, as an animal on this earth, what are the basic requirements for survival? When you're in an emergency, it's not necessarily about being pretty or productive. It's about getting the thing done and meeting your basic requirements and needs. And we know what they are. They're shelter. You've got your home. You're good to go. You know, if your home's no longer available and you have great social capital with your neighbors or your faith group, you've now got an alternate home. You see where I'm going with the social capital? So you can really meet shelter and just by meeting people. You don't have to buy alternate shelter to go put on your lawn to build a tent to live in, right? That's never a bad idea, especially in, in large scale damages like tornadoes and things like that, to have that alternate accommodation. But in the very immediacy, if, if your house, for whatever reason, is no longer habitable on the onset of an emergency, if you have strong social capital, you've got many houses that you can knock on and go stay there. Um, the second thing is is water. We I live in Canada. It is the number one country in the world for the storage of fresh water. The province of Ontario that I live in has 12% of the world's fresh water. We have hundreds and hundreds of lakes. Um, I'm not going to go thirsty. I may have to walk a little ways to get fresh water, but I'm not going to go thirsty. I can walk 
within a half an hour from my house and have no less than five water sources that, you know, it's probably not the best to drink from, but in a pinch, I could drink from it. So I've got water, but with social capital, I've got access to everybody else's water too in the short run. Again, you can see where social capital is eventful. And then food. Listen, everybody's got food in their house. You know, people say, yeah, I need 72 hours of food. I'm pretty sure you've, if you did stop going to the grocery store for three days, you wouldn't starve. Now, you might not exactly like exactly what you're eating. Fair enough. Get that. Understand the point. But the point is you've got food in your house. And again, if you have to leave your house and your house is no longer have habitable and you have to go to somebody else's house, I'm sure they're going to throw a pasta meal on for you to give you some growlies into your gut so you can think and pivot onto your next plan. So again, you can look at it through that simplistic lens and you come to the conclusion that individual emergency preparedness is cheap and simple. And the idea behind it is meet your meet your neighbors, build social capital, build community resiliency, and then you'll be prepared for anything. And you have not spent a dollar. You have not acquired a single thing from any website. You've not downloaded anything. Nobody's giving you a checklist PFD. Now you feel safer and warmer in your bed knowing that when the world goes sideways, you have other people and places to count upon. That is the strength of social capital, community resilience, call it what you will. It doesn't matter. That is what the messaging of the government of Canada and other governments should do. Let's build social capital. Let's create strong, resilient communities. And you do that through funding communities. And I said this to an emergency manager that I spoke to at a municipality. I said, you know, if, if you were going to fund something, fund a community center. It's the number one thing in emergency preparedness that you could fund for a community is a social gathering space because that's going to double hat as an emergency shelter. It's going to double hat as a congregating place. If the world goes sideways, where am I going to go to find the information? Well, I'm going to go to my community center because I know that's where the community is going to gather and we're going to exchange ideas. Um, it's just the smartest thing that a community could ask for and that the government could provide. It's it's nothing to do with kits. It's and, and I keep bashing kits on this because what you create by telling people to buy a kit and get a radio is on a street you have 200 individually prepared families who have zero connection to each other. That is far, far worse than a connected, resilient society that has bought absolutely nothing. And trust me, 90% of the people in the developed world have a phone. Guess what's on the back of the phone? It's called a flashlight. That bright light that you search through your room to try to find stuff with? Yeah, listen. People are fine. They've got all the stuff that they need. They don't need to buy for basic, simplistic, human, animalistic requirements. They don't need to buy anything. It's all there. Everybody's got the kit they need. Uh, they'll be good to go in the short run. Now, if you want to take emergency preparedness to another level, we at Inside My Canoe Head have the entire 12-step plan that we did this year in second season. In the first season, we've got a whole bunch of episodes about various different principal ideas about individual emergency preparedness. You can take individual emergency preparedness to an exponentially great level where you are robustly prepared for any number of things and that you've spent time and energy. But it's like when I was watching uh, uh, the Canadian Prepper on YouTube the other day, and he said, sometimes it's like one of the messages that the greatest problem with society today, the greatest ill in today's society is jealousy. It's comparative advantage. People are comparing themselves to other 
people and finding some fault in their current existence and that contributes to their mental stability. The issue is, is that people like me and other people who have spent years learning and studying and building up our emergency preparedness, you're, gonna, you're not going to be at the same level as anybody else. It takes time to get there. But the basic simplistic things that the government should be advocating for are free. They're all around you. That's what you should be doing not running out and buying a bunch of kits or entering a contest to win a free emergency kit. What you need to be doing is building a sense of community and gathering people around you. It's like when you take up a sport, right? You take up golfing, you take up table tennis, you take up handball, you take up football, anything. You're going to run into people who are far better at the sport than you are, but through time and dedication, you'll get there. But it doesn't take long to learn the basics, does it? You know, if you play some footy in Europe, it's, it doesn't take long to figure out what the rules are. There's a few nuances, but fair enough. I mean, cricket, that's a whole different world. You could do a whole podcast on cricket. But the whole point is, is that the basic rules of the game when you learn footy are really, really simple. You learn it, you watch it, and then it takes decades to get good at it. And that's the point. It's a journey, folks. Well, thanks very much for joining us this week on Inside My Canoe Head. Hopefully this was a good message to you on the Emergency Preparedness Week. Be prepared for anything. If you do anything this week, meet your neighbor, sit down, and think about all the bad things that could happen to you over a cup of coffee and the things that you might do with it. And then if you're just not sure what to do, hop back to a whole bunch of our uh, episodes here on Inside My Canoe Head. Drop me an email at jeff at preparednesslabs.ca. I just put a blog post up today on my website, which is preparednesslabs.ca. Uh, I post regularly on LinkedIn, and I have an Instagram and a Twitter handle. So anytime you want to reach out to me, please feel free. Love to connect with you. Love to chat emergency preparedness. Take care. Stay safe. Get the jab, whatever they offer you, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>